everyone is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good day, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you happen to be listening to our podcast, uh, we welcome you. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. I'm very pleased to be with you again, and again, we're bringing you a really important topic show. Um, We have touched on this subject before in a different way. Um, We did a podcast uh, a few months ago with um, a reporter who was down on the uh, other side of the Mexican border and was actually with um, a group of uh, people who had come up through the caravan um, through Mexico. And uh, these folks were all LGBTQ um, wannabe immigrants um, parked out there on the other side of the the border hoping to get into the United States. Uh, He covered the experience there and what was was going on. Um, We've witnessed at that time and since and um, uh, virtually all during the Trump administration, um, just absolute horrors that um, most of us stand back and and are just aghast. I mean, how did we arrive at a point where children are separated from their parents, um, families are sleeping under highway overpasses, and militarized police are roaming unchecked um, despite evidence that, or despite no evidence, that immigrants pose either a criminal or economic threat to our country. So today we're going to take a broader view of that. We are going to be talking to Dr. Elizabeth F. Cohen about her brand new book, Illegal, um, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime threatens us all. We're going to get the big picture on what's been going on, how it occurred, how it's evolved to this, and we're going to get into her viewpoint on what the solution um, to this might be. Um, Dr. Cohen is a professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. She wrote a book in 2018 called The Political Value of Time, which won the Best Book Award from the Migration and Citizenship section of the American Political Science Association. Um, We are going to be bringing her on in just a minute. But before I do that, I do want to welcome on my uh, esteemed co-host, Brody Leck. Brody, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. And it is Wednesday, February 12th. I feel almost like we're going to sit there and keynote things as we go along here because this is how the timeline's been. Uh, Just a couple things I wanted to bring up. Uh, Our uh, dear friend and Presidential Medal of Freedom awardee, Rush Limbaugh, on his radio program, said the following. A gay guy, 37 years old. Loves kissing his husband on debate stages. Can you see Trump have fun with that? Question mark. So uh, keeping in mind 
folks that are listening to the sound of my voice. This is the guy that the president gave the American nation's highest civilian award to. Isn't that just special? And if I sound like I'm a little sarcastic, it's because I am. Um, In in other news, a couple things we should note. Naval records obtained by the Bay Area Reporter confirmed that the late gay rights and civil rights uh, leader and former San Francisco supervisor Harvey Milk was given an other than honorable discharge from the U.S. Navy, and he was forced to resign his commission rather than face a court-martial because of his homosexuality. For many, many years, uh, a lot of folks, my, you know, myself included, uh, thought that Harvey had simply gotten out of the Navy and went into Wall Street. Uh, and it turns out that that wasn't the case. Uh, he was forced to resign on February 7th of 1955, and he was under threat of court-martial. Uh, now, this, of course, calls into question the veracity of the archival documents that are housed in the San Francisco Public Libraries. Uh, History Center, which is also where a lot of LGBT records have been kept uh, pertaining to uh, Harvey, as well as uh, former San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, who was murdered the same day. Um, Even people who are extremely close to Harvey have been convinced that Milk had left on a very honorable basis. Uh, And uh, Cleve Jones, uh, who was one of them, told uh, Ebar, well, this is fascinating. Uh, as to the knowledge, as to my knowledge, this is the first time someone has been able to get this information from the Navy. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting piece. It's at the Bay Area Reporter now. If you'd like to read it, the headline is "Naval Records Indicate San Francisco Library's Milk Discharge Paperwork Is a Fake." Um, also, <laughs> just a couple of well, just which, you know, which Brody, the the thing on that yeah. story though is. Is that the least bit surprising? I mean, that was the time. That was that was not necessarily a reflection on Harvey Milk. It was um, oh, exactly no. what was happening and the experience of brave LGBTQ people who were serving in the military and being thrown out unceremoniously uh, exactly that way. Oh, yeah, and I don't think that, you know, and I know the crew at Ebar really, really well, and this is not shade-throwing. This is just a a matter of fact, and you're absolutely correct. Harvey uh, was contemporary to that time. I personally knew someone else who was affected by what we call the Lavender Scale, scare of that era, who was also in the military. He was an Army astronomer, uh, Dr. Franklin Camney, uh, and I actually knew Frank personally. And uh, he became very famous because he took – the Army and the American government literally to court all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, who just turned down his writ of satori. But Frank will always be remembered for fighting hard uh, for gay rights that way. And then another quick item, real quick for us before we start. Um, so my colleague, NBC News' White House reporter Pete Alexander, in a press gaggle today in the Oval Office, asked Trump this question. What lesson did you learn from impeachment? Here's the president's response, that the Democrats are crooked. They've got a lot of crooked things going. They're vicious. They shouldn't have brought impeachment. Uh, This came not more than probably five minutes after Trump was asked uh, whether or not he was going to pardon his former buddy, Roger Stone. And the president's response was, I don't want to say that just yet. So this is how the day has been, Rob. 
Yeah, no, well, that, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting year um, with the, the Trump dialogue. And um, I, actually, none of that is particularly surprising. But it just uh, shows what, what the conversation is going to be like. Um, I, I did want to mention, by the way, um, mm-hmm. before we bring on our guest, that um, we are proudly sponsored by the Los Angeles Blade, um, and this, blade, this week's Los Angeles Blade sounds the alarm about a growing chemsex crisis in Los Angeles and the nation. Um, you'll also find news in it about how Super Tuesday is shaping up for the race in California. Um, as we've mentioned before, the Los Angeles Blade is LA's only weekly LGBT newspaper and the city's largest, most frequently distributed media in print online. Um, It also, along with its partner newspaper, The Washington Blade, is the nation's only LGBT member of the House White House Press Corps. So um, in theory, they're going to give us even more Trump quotes as we move along. But we want to give a shout-out to them. Well... It's uh, going to be, as you said, kind of interesting as we move forward. Uh, as, as I indicated to you in several conversations, both on and off air, you know, now that he's been cleared, uh, the gloves are off, uh, and he's just going to go to town. And, uh, you know, I think that the Stone decision, his uh, sacking of the National Security Advisor, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, and his brother as well from the White House staff, uh, Trump actually mentioned uh, to the press corps today that he's uh, thinking about asking the Defense Department to look into, you know, maybe investigating Vinland for wrongdoing. Uh, so it's he's on a he's on a petty, vindictive role, and I think to the point of what we're going to be talking about in the next hour with Dr. Cohen, um, immigration is very much under the microscope now as far as the Trump White House is concerned, uh, and in the personage of Stephen Miller. Uh, and some of the other folks over at Homeland Security, uh, it, it's probably going to get a lot worse. So um, with that, uh, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, and uh, you actually took it exactly where I was going to, which is uh, immigration will be a big part of the dialogue this year. Um, and to give us even more insight into that um, with a very well-timed book, Illegal, um, uh, how America's lawless immigration regime threatens us all. Um, Dr. Cohen is putting this book out on the market to inform us and um, help set the, the stage for what is coming. And with that, I would very much like to uh, welcome Dr. Cohen to the show. Dr. Cohen, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rob. It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Oh, it's it's thrilling for us, and um, your book is absolutely fascinating. Um, Let's take care of a little housekeeping. When is that available for people to buy? It just hit, so I'm um, pleased to say it's now in a bunch of bookstores. I've seen some pictures of friends who are in bigger cities than I'm in, um, but it's out now. And actually, I think Amazon has put it on sale for people who are Amazon patrons, (laughs) so it's, it's reduced. Excellent. So, folks, as you're listening to this and you will want to pick up the book, 
you can go instantly and go get it, which we highly recommend. Um, Dr. Cohen, I want to take us back before the Trump years and actually even before the Obama years, um, because the thing that one of the things that fascinated me in your book was the revelation that um, this stage has been set a long time and particularly was exacerbated um, after 9-11. Can you give us some uh, background as to all that? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think uh, is kind of almost, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around in a moment when we're hearing so much rhetoric is that we have been heading for this particular place we're in for a long time and that it is the case that we have had problematic um, policymakers, a lot of white nationalist influences on immigration policy and law for a very long time. Uh, and in the book, I kind of hit on a few key moments. Uh, 9-11 is one of them. So 9-11 triggers massive federal government reorganization, um, really one of the biggest we've seen in um, almost 100 years. Uh, and the Department of Homeland Security is created. Department of Homeland Security is created in a rush. It's created as a response to a perceived security threat. And in so doing, our existing immigration enforcement and immigration um, agency, which had been called INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services, that's scotched. We get rid of it and create these different agencies, ICE, CBP, um, and then uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services. So very different administrative structure. Bush actually opposed the creation of DHS at the cabinet level. He, he did not um, support that. It passes by one vote. It's not popular. It's hasty. And it's just not very well done. So the agencies start off with very few checks on what they're going to do and kind of, uh, uh, you know, as government agencies are, um, uh, with a lot of incentive to just grow for the sake of growth, which is what happens. And in, I want to jump us forward, although I don't want to leave leave the the timeline on it necessarily. But but um, <laughs> what has happened under the Trump administration seems like um, an opportunistic move on something that was already not well thought out. Um, you know where the security aspect of it was turned, you know, on, on a sort of an economic suppression level rather than something that was truly a domestic terrorist threat to the United States. Is, is that accurate or um, uh, were there other yeah. things that yeah, I mean, I think all along you see this kind of challenge for um, the immigration agency, enforcement agencies in DHS, which is they were created with a mandate to enhance the national security in the United States. But, in fact, there's not a threat for them to respond to. So, you know, one of the things I did when I was researching the book was go through even kind of the hardest core, like, anti-immigrant organizations, as well as DHS's own data, looking for, like, were there people committing acts of terrorism or um, who, who turned out to have been plotting acts of terrorism who had um, entered 
without authorization into the country. In other words, was the thing they were telling us that they were going to do to protect us, these immigration enforcement agencies, was, was there really such a threat? And the answer is no. Like, there's, they, you know, there were yeah. a few investigations, like, you know, 18 or so um, before Trump comes into office. And, and, like, they weren't finding anything as hard as they were trying. So what you see over the years um, leading up to Trump and then now even more is kind of um, massaging of the mission statements of the agencies, then moving from we are here to keep people who are in the United States safe into the territory of just generic, we're in- enforcing for the sake of enforcement and not for any particular purpose and increasing kind of um, levels of cruelty, um, bigger budgets, more weapons, more military-grade weapons, just, you know, lots of just growth in pretty sinister directions, but never a movement back to we can show that this enhances um, U.S. national security. Right. Yeah. It, it, when I think about it, especially having read that, you know, this, this you know, these organizations were put together after 9-11, was, you know, just thinking about the people behind 9-11, I am, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm fairly certain none of them snuck across the Mexican border to get here. They probably walked right through the airport in New York or one of our major cities. Um, And there's really no reason to think that any of them would choose to come up through Mexico as opposed to coming in through Canada. I mean, it just, it's sort of mind boggling the logic behind the operation. Yeah. I mean, I can remember at the time, like thinking this, you know, when, when DHS was created thinking like, really, we're being told that there is a security threat that, that exists um, because of the, the Southern border. Like that is bizarre. I can't believe anyone's going to, I actually was so naive. I thought, I can't, I don't think people will believe this. (laughs) I was obviously wrong. (laughs) It should call into question my credibility, but like, you know, at certain moments we let our guard down and have faith in people. It it turned out to be extremely persuasive. In the case of 9-11, you had um, four folks who overstayed student visas. um, And, um, so there was, I think, an attempt to kind of make that sound like something it wasn't, which was unauthorized entry. But, um, but in fact, like the, this kind of policing of the border was was never justifiable on the basis of national security and is not today. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I'm going to take you back a little bit in your book, Dr. Cohen, and I, and I want to highlight a couple of things that you said. Um, one of which I wrote about, um, and I'm not bragging here, I, I wrote a book on the history of presidential transportation, specifically FDR's uh, 1939 uh, Lincoln K limousine, which was the first presidential car. In the course of oh, my cool. research, I also, I also couched it in terms of the background of what was going on. So a couple of points that, you know, you, that I'd like to discuss with you. First of all, this anti-immigrant um, fervor, is as old as the United States itself. It goes all the way back to the time that the founding fathers hadn't even dried the ink uh, in Philadelphia at Independence Hall. But more contemporary, and this is something I'd like to point out, uh, there's a lot of pointing fingers at Republicans, but the truth of the matter is progressives are just as ugly. Um, 
Division and Reunion, Woodrow Wilson, Immigration and the Myth of American Unity, which was a book by Hans Voigt, pointed out that Wilson actually made comments like Germans can never be assimilated. And that was ugly. And granted, there was war going on and a few other things, but that was kind of a prevailing thought at the time. But then we get to FDR. And while I was researching the book on FDR, I had to deal with Executive Order 9066. And for our listeners that don't know what Executive Order 9066 is, it was a presidential order by FDR, an executive order, and it authorized the Secretary of War to prescribe certain areas as military zones, which cleared the way for incarceration, uh, the incarceration of Americans of German ancestry, Italian ancestry, but more importantly, Japanese ancestry, which was the folks that were disproportionately affected by this. Um, Every time I hear people point fingers at Republicans on immigration, I cringe a little bit, only because of the fact that both sides are equally bad. This is one of the things that I liked about your book was that it brought forward that very salient point that U.S. immigration has been a mess from the get-go. So here's my question. During the Reagan administration, which was my first term as a reporter uh, reporting on an American administration, they had a chance to work with then-Speaker Tip O'Neill in the Congress to do something in 1986, and they blew it. During the first term of the Clinton administration, they had another try at it, and they screwed the booch again. And then, of course, after 9-11, it went completely off the rail. And now, of course, as you you know, have put forward in your book, this led the foundation for what we're seeing now uh, with Stephen Miller and the cronies over at, you know, Homeland Security Investigations, ICE, and everything else. When you were doing your research, what were the areas that you were looking at in terms of really telling the story and elaborating on the different points that, hey, by the way, this is not just solely a Republican issue? Yeah, I mean, I have been studying immigration for a long time, and I started studying immigration in the mid-'90s, which is when you saw um, Bill Clinton presiding pretty enthusiastically over some of the most consequential uh, bits of legislation for the purposes of of both uh, immigrant incarceration and deportation that the country has ever seen. So I went into this knowing that this was not something that, would be kind of a partisan team, you know, go team story for Democrats or mm-hmm. Republicans. And so I went into the book just looking for what are the pivotal moments where we can find the idea of illegality coming into existence because it's not something that um, it's not a term that always existed. And the, the concept of illegal immigration itself didn't really exist for, for a good chunk of U.S. history. So I went in looking like, when does this come about? When does it start to matter? Who are the main players? And um, you can't look at mid-century, early 20th century, mid, mid-20th century legislative um, legislation on immigration and not see Democrats doing things that are either on their face or kind of behind the scenes skeptical of immigrants on the basis of race. Now, the race of the people who are being scrutinized or possibly kept out, um, those, those change because our understandings of who's white and who's not white change over the 20th century. But there's very clearly kind of, um, and, and like, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is these are elites and policymakers, and then there are some pretty elite white nationalists in on it too. As I point out in the book, 
if you ask with, you know, very neutrally framed questions, if you poll Americans on how do they feel about immigrants and how do they feel about immigration generally, they, they, it polls pretty well. Gallup has data going all the way back into the 90s showing American, U, U.S. citizens, Americans, people in the United States support immigration. It's the elites <laughs> that, are, that are a problem, but it's both Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think that one of the things that struck me in, in, in the tone of the book, too, and the other thing was that you laid the legislative base for what has now morphed into um, – it, it's difficult to, to phrase this any other way, but it's, it's an institutional – uh, it, uh, it, I, I don't know. It's just an out of control institution now, uh, especially with Border Patrol. That mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at an agency that's unto its own and its own fiefdom. And I agree yeah. with you. I think that during the Clinton years, uh, we saw the basis for that. Um, however, I do believe that the first stab that the Republicans and the Democrats had at, uh, in '86 during the Reagan era. Um, was the precursor to what Clinton then kind of more or less codified. And I think the other thing that people need to understand is that the negative impact of this is that this is literally the old Muslim, you know, if the camel gets his nose under the tent, pretty soon the rest of the camel will follow. And when you're looking at ICE and Border Patrol and some of these other things, and we saw this, I saw this at the border uh, two summers ago when I was down there, um, that we're we're seeing this now. It's we got like half the camels in the bloody tent, and it's in the form of you know unbelievable uh, actions by border patrol. It's as though they don't honestly truly feel that you know they have to answer to anyone, and I that's dangerous. Yeah, uh, and, and the truth is they don't. They don't have to answer to anyone. They're never, ever held accountable for the things they do that break the law. True. We've seen this uh, in the LGBTQI community in particular. We've had uh, at last count, and I'd, I'd have to check with uh, my friends at Lambda Legal and uh, the Transgender Law Center, but I do believe we've had at least eight or nine documented cases uh, of uh, abuse of transgender asylum seekers uh, from, uh, you know, Latin American countries south of the border um, by the border, by the border patrol. And so it, it's, you're right, they're lawless. Uh, and one of the things that's you know, of concern to me, um, and, and we've seen this, you know, it's, it's a repeating pattern. I, I can remember I was in a courtroom in Brownsville, Texas, and, you know, these are all the folks that the Border Patrol had rounded up. There was hardly any attorneys at all. Uh, essentially, none of, none of the folks in the room, there's like 60, 70 people in there, including kids, including toddlers. Nobody, speak, no, 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 nobody speaks English, not a single person, okay? And it was like a factory. It's like railroad mm-hmm. right through. And I was like, I don't believe I'm watching this. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, Rob? Yeah, I wanted to ask about something that Brody used the the phrase um, equally bad in terms of the the process that that got us here, and I kind of want to disagree or uncouple that a little bit and get your feedback on it. 
because I understand that, you know, obviously the Clinton administration set up something that set the stage for this. Um, George Bush, um, George W. Bush did as well. The Obama administration um, uh, had policies that the Trump administration apparently leveraged but were not enacted the same way. But, you know, I'm a somewhat uninformed observer of, of the process over the years to, as most of the American public is now, witnessing things that are unbelievably horrific with families losing their kids and, you know, toddlers being separated and undocumented from the parents that they were separated from potentially never to be reunited again to children in cages. Um, everything that is happening now, um, has it always been this bad or what has changed to change this from simply a really ill thought out, poorly um, motivated system to one that is full of horrors? So that's a great question. I think I'd start off by saying <clears throat> there's an enormous amount of performative cruelty in the um, actions that are being taken by the Trump administration, and by which I don't mean to say that the cruelty is not also, um, you know, very real for the people experiencing it. But in many cases, when I say, you know, Democrats were doing some pretty bad things or Republicans in the past were doing some pretty troubling things with respect to immigration, um, there was a lot of incentive to, to, um, not perform the cruelty loudly in public, but actually to um, pay lip service to certain types of norms that were understood to be important to U.S. citizens. So, um, you know, you did have some, you had somebody like Sheriff Joe Arpaio out there doing pretty outrageous things, and then there'd be uh, a, a sense that in Washington that, you know, one does not um, make policy to to fulfill those particular types of norms. Trump blew, blew that up entirely. Um, so there's 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 all this performance of it. But Trump is probably at some point going to surpass deportations. Um, you know uh, uh, the deportation numbers that Obama had, but Obama still right now um, leads as the most having had the most deportations under his watch of any president. Mm. Uh, um, but, of course, Trump is also doing a good deal more to prevent people from exercising their right to request asylum, and that's something that we weren't really seeing as much of under the Obama administration, um, these, these agreements that are sending people to um, – to Latin American countries that they're not from instead of allowing them to claim asylum in the United States or keeping them in Mexico. Um, that's, that's definitely new under Trump. Yeah. But, yeah. um, what, but, what about you know, the like, children, the treatment of children and families? Was that, um, something that truly was happening and we weren't aware of, or, or is that a Trump administration, uh, uh yeah. new event? Yeah. Um, there was a particular policy for a delimited period of time under the Trump administration that um, 
was separating children from their parents and then actually taking the children out from underneath Department of Homeland Security care and giving them to Health and Human Services. And they, they, when they piloted the program, they knew that they didn't have a way to keep track of those children. So they knew going in once they implemented it that they were going to, to permanently um, lose some people's children, which is just, it's unspeakable. Um, it is, though, also the case that when people are in ICE detention, and this has been true for, you know, a long period of time, the way ICE operates, often essentially has the effect of um, separating people because ICE will move their uh, inmates around and not, not tell their family members where they are and make it impossible if somebody is fortunate enough to have legal representation, make it impossible for their lawyer to contact them. So ICE has like been um, essentially breaking up families and, and, and disappearing people in that slightly um, dramatic language, but really making it impossible for people to find each other for a long time. So I don't want to um, elide those two things, but I also would, would not say that, that this is um, surprising behavior on the part of immigration enforcement agencies in the United States. Wow, and in amazing. fact, I'll just add um, something to this. I have a, I, I just one more thing. I have a colleague, um, a terrific uh, political scientist at the University of Washington, Angelina Godoy, and she, she has been sued by ICE because she requested information about um, minors who were being held in, um, in her county, but with no indefinitely, no clear sense of whether the immigrant minors, no clear sense of whether they're going to be released or when or why they're there, right? So, and and that has nothing to do with the the family separation policy that you and I are talking about. So there's there's a lot of pockets of um, of of separation of other sorts that that are that's occurring that we just don't know about. And if ICE is suing a U.S. citizen researcher who simply wants information about why these people are there, the, the, that, that speaks to a level of entitlement that is, to me, absolutely unjustifiable. Right. Well, I, and that is actually what I wanted to ask you about is um, we've made reference a couple times um, on the podcast already about ICE and CBT or CDP um, have grown, that they're, They've created this autonomy of themselves. They they grow their own budgets and power with no regard to how the um, uh, regime is eroding our democracy. Can you speak to that a little bit? How how are they eroding our democracy, and how are they so freeform? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's so some of this I think is that Department of Homeland Security just has not been able to rein them in. And some of it goes back further. So one of the things I do in the book is I, I go back before, you know, we had these agencies and I point out that immigration enforcement, which used to be primarily um, immigration and naturalization services, but border patrol was, was in there doing it. They, they have a long, long history since their inception, basically of um, either ignoring the, restrictions on their power, so doing things that they're just not supposed to do, or if they're kind of called on it and um, asking Congress or going through the court system to try and get their illegal behavior made into legal behavior. So I trace the 
the background to something a lot of people don't know about, which is that Customs and Border Protection is, in a certain sense, um, they're not held to the same Fourth Amendment standards that their other law enforcement agencies are held to. It's important to say they're the, they're the largest federal law enforcement agency. Um, they're bigger than any other. And, um, and they do not have to abide by the same interpretations of um, searches and seizures. So they, it, they have special zones in which they um, do not have to have probable cause. And, um, and they can, in some cases, operate without warrants and things like that. So, they, like, I have an example in the book of an instance in which um, Customs and Border Protection, they can just go on your land um, if, if they're investigating and you're within their jurisdiction, which is two-thirds of the U.S. population is in Customs and Border Protection's jurisdiction. They can just go on your land. They don't have to have permission. And they, but they were on somebody's land multiple times, just storming it, and also had set up cameras. Um, so they were monitoring with cameras that um, a private property owner's land, would, then that person had no knowledge until they discovered that there were cameras on their land. Their, their searches and cars, um, particularly their fixed checkpoints, they can uh, uh, pursue somebody and stop them, and the, the they, they do not have to have um, either probable cause or, in some cases, what's known as individualized suspicion. Um, when the court rendered the ruling that permitted this, they, in the language of the decision, just looking Mexican is enough to permit Customs and Border Protection to stop you. And looking Mexican in the decision is described as something as vague as having a Mexican-looking haircut, right? So... You know, this is not the type of behavior that I think most people understand to be the behavior that law enforcement agents are supposed to um, engage in. ICE has problems, too. We see um, ICE, the way in which ICE engages in deportations has actually caused U.S. citizens to be deported. ICE has U.S. citizens in custody. The estimates um, are are in the thousands that that ICE has has held U.S. citizens who do not belong in ICE custody under any circumstances has held thousands and thousands of U.S. citizens, um, and not just for short periods of time. I'm not talking about they pick you up for a few hours. In some cases, in many cases, months. I'm, I'm like shocked. I, I'm not even sure what to say about their ability to do this. Has anybody documented what U.S. citizens have been kind of sucked into this and, and where they are and why? So there's some work that's been done on that. The ACLU has done some looking, and then um, Cato has done some looking in Florida and in Texas. And what they've done is they've looked at, um, at county-level data and then tried to extrapolate based on the presence of, uh, of ICE in various counties in the U.S. And so they're, they, like they're, they're projecting, but they do conservative projections. Um, and even the conservative projections have ICE holding in custody, you know, in some cases in a year, like 2,000 people that are U.S. citizens. And, and like I, I'm, I think it's really important to make a point here. It is not the case that any of us should be more concerned with the rights of U.S. citizens than the rights of anybody else. Human rights are human rights, and nobody deserves to have um, their rights abused, to be incarcerated unjustly. 
um, to be abused while incarceration, all of which is happening. But I really um, think it's important to emphasize that if, as a lot of people are, are sitting there thinking, well, this doesn't really affect me, they're wrong. Because once you have what is essentially um, an immigration police state where the police are not being kept in line, in fact, they're being encouraged to abuse their power, there's, there's no distinction. It does not protect you to have U.S. citizenship. No, it's, uh, it, it doesn't. Um, where, for the people that you, are, you just described that are kind of sitting back going, oh, this doesn't affect me, how are they being affected that they are unaware of? I mean, so first of all, if, you, if you're in, so Customs and Border Protection has a zone in, it's 100 miles in from the border at any point along the border. So like I happen to be in Syracuse, New York right now, I am in the Customs and Border Protection zone. As I said, two thirds of the U.S. population is because 100 miles in from the border at any point covers a lot of really population dense areas. So um, we here have to be really thoughtful about how we're going to use the bus and train station. And I'm not too um, proud to admit that sometimes, you know, I'm on the Greyhound bus trying to get to New York at the last minute for something I need to do there. And um, we're all being we're being policed constantly there. So I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm being checked, and if somebody, either because they don't like me or because they've made an honest mistake, um, picks me up, right, I think about the fact mm -hmm. that there are cases in which um, ICE and CBP have picked people up mistakenly and, and lied about the evidence they had. Um, in one case, an ICE officer lied about uh, forged some documents to show that somebody was deportable when in fact they weren't deportable. And the only, it went through the courts. It went to, to um, the Ninth Circuit. The only reason this guy ended up being able to prove that he had a right to be in the U.S. and was not deportable was because this, the ICE agent put the, a date on the form that he was forging that was before the agency had been created. <laughs> oh, like that's like that's somebody who was a U.S. citizen entitled to be in the United States. If that doesn't scare people, you know, it should because right. that, that's not somebody whose citizenship protected him. Brody. Well, I, one of the things that uh, you know, and you you picked up on this in your book, and it, and this is just kind of a fact. I mean, along the southern border in particular. I think when we were down in the Brownsville area, we passed through probably half a dozen immigration uh, checkpoints, and uh, three of them were roving and the others were fixed. Uh, I recently traveled across the United States uh, and unfortunately ran into two of them in Arizona, and I think the only thing that uh, kind of protected me from getting harassed was the fact that I normally wear my press credentials on the uh, Border Patrol saw my press credentials hanging out. They just avoided me. He's <laughs> like, oh, no, no, we're not, we're not talking to him. You know, like, ah. Kind of like having a crucifix for garlic on a vampire, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but may I, uh, may I interject yeah, a point, which is yeah. ICE has actually been targeting journalists. So they're doing a lot of data collection and targeting of two groups of people, people who have attended protests and journalists, because um, journalists have been among the people who've been able to expose what ICE is doing. 
So I would not necessarily count on those credentials protecting you in the future. In fact, in some cases, they may um, work to your disadvantage, although I certainly hope that doesn't happen. Wow. Well, no, and, it's, it, and I, I'll be honest with you, um, I've had two of my colleagues uh, who have gone through um, all sorts of hell on the northern border coming across from my homeland into the United States. Uh, you know, above and beyond what one would consider a normal check. And it just, the, the power of these, uh, it's, it's a rogue agency. I, I've got no other way of putting it. Um, and in particular, I don't think that, you know, Americans really understand to what degree, you know, this goes. Um, I was gratified to see you point that out in your book. Uh, but this is this goes beyond you know, kind of an America first. I mean, these people are, you know, kind of an autonomous police state, the way they view themselves. And uh, I've had a few exchanges with them. And I got to tell you, you know, I'm glad they happened outside of a 100 mile jurisdiction. That could have gotten dicey for me. But I mean, you know, it it really, you know, they really are that ugly. Uh, Dr. Cohen, one of the things that that I I find, and and I saw that in your book, too, but it didn't appear to me that um, in, in talking with Americans when I was down on the border, and I've talked to others since then, that they really have a firm understanding of just how broken the American immigration system is. Would you like to kind of comment on that? Yeah, I mean, so as I, I said before, I think that the, there's a great deal of performative cruelty right now. And so I think that the the, the, the only um, potential pathway out of where we are from the perspective of public opinion and kind of how people vote is that, that there is some recognition um, that, that this is not acceptable, that it is um, in addition to being cruel and damaging, that it is uh, internationally, like, you know, shame-making that um, – so I, I think that um, this will eventually um, kind of turn people's stomachs. There is, of course, a really strong streak of nativism right now um, in the U.S. population that's being activated, and and like that's incredibly discouraging. Um, but the other thing that I I think you know, kind of thinking about, like, where do we go from here, um, is that essentially walling yourselves in um, tends to not have good effects on the economy. (laughs) And I think people are going to start seeing that uh, in the not-too-distant future. But but that, that will take several cycles. Well, Dr. Cohen, I would argue that the folks in the United Kingdom, particularly uh, under the influence of Westminster, are about to find that out the hard way through Brexit. Uh, Rob? Uh. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Dr. Jordan, you just took us to the the concept of where do we go from here, which is a little bit what I wanted to, um, to broach with you. Um, obviously, it is <laughs> – with, with our Congress, anything comprehensive, whether it is against gun violence, whether it's health care, um, those things seem insurmountable and often just dead in the water right up front. But you outlined um, simpler targeted changes that 
you feel can be made to improve this greatly. Can you go through some of those changes and what those would look like? Sure, sure. So um, I've kind of got a multi-pronged approach in the book, and I say outright that, you know, I have nothing against comprehensive immigration reform. If, if it can be um, accomplished, that's wonderful. It, it's been a long time, and it tends to be the case that big, big immigration reforms don't happen very often. So I'm skeptical, and I, I approach this with a great sense of urgency. Um, so I, I kind of um, suggest some things that I don't think necessarily need to be bundled. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important is um, basically dismantling these agencies, and if that means dismantling DHS, all the better because we DHS is not a very old agency uh, and it does not perform well. So I think that, um, and you know, there's kind of some agreement on this among people who study the issue that if we were to go back to a situation in which we had one agency whose primary focus was actually uh, things involving, I call them welcome mat, um, uh, functions, but basically, like we do naturalize people in this country, we have to. It is uh, something that many people are legally entitled to do, and we want to do it. Many good consequences are naturalizing people, including good economic consequences. But to go back to a time when, when our our immigration agency, we had one immigration agency, and 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 then anything that that agency wants to do with respect to policing the interior or the border has to be demonstrably of some value because right now I can take you through every single thing that ICE and CBP do that's really like their, their big expensive functions and show that it's not only not a value, it's actually counterproductive. Um, so I think we need some really big agency level change. Uh, the next thing I say is we've got to dismantle the 1996 laws, which we haven't talked about very much yet. And I'll just kind of briefly cover the fact that in 1996, Congress, as I said, with Clinton's enthusiastic approval, essentially created a class of crimes that apply only to immigrants that take very, in some cases, very minor crimes, shoplifting, and elevate them to something that's called an aggravated felony. They then make anybody who has got an aggravated felony on their record um, eligible for incarceration and deportation, and in some cases it affects um, some. And I'm talking about even legal Im immigrants who are authorized. It, it's just bad for immigrants, and it's what it's how we ended up with such a massive immigration um, uh, prison network because that means so many people eligible for incarceration. We need to dismantle. We need, they say fix 96. We need to go back to uh, the much, you know, uh, the pre-1996 period of a set of saner laws. And then the last thing I say in the book, and this is not something that people really want to talk about right now, but we have to be talking about this, um, is throughout the book I trace something that's really not well known, which is a, a provision called registry, we didn't have penalties for being undocumented in the United States till 1929. And in 1929, when Congress created those penalties, they also had a very urgent sense that you could not actually let people who'd been living in the country um, uh, and, and had demonstrated themselves to be citizenly in every way, you could not let them live undocumented 
uh, in, in perpetually, that this was like a horrible thing. It was shameful and we should not be doing this because these essentially were eligible citizens. So registry has, is a set of rules that allows people who had at that point come by 1921 to regularize, to become citizens. We update the date a bunch of times, but the last time we updated the registry date was 1986, um, which uh, Brody made reference to. Uh, and we haven't updated it since, which means that essentially people, and, and at the same time in the U.S. now, the undocumented population is, is every year more and more made up of people who have been here for a while, um, many years. So we need to update mm -hmm. registry probably on a rolling basis so that if you have people who, you know, have been in the country, own businesses, um, raised their families here, are in every way acting in citizenly ways, that they have a way to also have legal status. I think that's, you know, we're not talking about DACA very much. We're not talking about amnesties or anything like that. But, like, this is a population of people who – we have demonstrated over and over again, if they were regularized, would be they're already contributing to the U.S. economy, including in many cases paying taxes, but they would contribute exponentially more. And I give some statistics on that in the book about just how much they could grow the U.S. economy if we would just do a sensible thing and offer them a pathway to citizenship. Well, Dr. Cohen, I, I got absolutely. Go ahead, Ron. Well, no, just no, one last ahead. thing, we're, and we're getting, yeah, we're getting a little short on time, Dr. Cohen. There was one thing that I wanted to just do a footnote with you. In 2017, the National Records and Archives Administration uh, agreed to let ICE officials delete or destroy documents that detail the sexual abuse and death of undocumented immigrants. And this is despite having received tens of thousands of comments and hearing objections of dozens of lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Uh, to your point of dismantling the agencies and going back pre-90, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, is there not? Yeah, I mean, you know, dismantling 1996 is a big enough chunk of work. Um, the the destruction of those records is, you know, happened during the same week that we learned that Customs and Border Protection is asking for kind of a different type of security status that will also make it harder to get um, records on what they're up to. So there's like a, a real move now toward, um, toward secrecy that was not in place before. And, and losing that evidence means losing some of the material that we need to actually push forward a case that these are, these are lawless agencies that are engaging in abuse. The, the sexual abuse in ICE and CBP custody it's first of all, it's been going on for a long time, and this came up. Um, you brought this up early in the program, but like we can document a certain amount, and it's a lot, but we know almost with certainty that there's way more because the mm -hmm. reporting rates are so low among people who have everything to be afraid of. So, um, so yeah, we're it, with respect to like transparency we've been moving in um in a really bad direction okay Rob? dr cohen we're in we're in our last few minutes here um uh what haven't we asked you pointed out um the 1996 uh law what haven't we asked that we should talk about before we go yeah i mean i think that um we should be, we, we have not in the we're in an election cycle right now. There's nobody listening to this who is not aware of the fact that 
Democrats are picking a presidential candidate and congressional elections um, will be gearing up as well. And I am, I, I don't see questions about immigration. I see all this public mm-hmm. outrage um, in the news sources I read uh, about immigration. There are news sources on the other side that are expressing outrage too, but I don't really see uh, immigration, anybody being pushed that hard on immigration issues in um, any of the races I'm watching. And I think that as citizens, you know, we have a lot of obligations. So I'm, I'm, you know, really feel strongly about things, things like what Brody's doing, going to bear witness uh, and paying attention, watching, you know, what's going on with immigration judges and, and what's going on with the um, rocket dockets and asylum seeking and all these things that are going on at the border. We should, we should not turn away. We must bear witness, but you cannot look at what's happening and the human rights abuses that are being done in our name and not then turn that to these elections and, and ask and really push hard on candidates to have much, much, much more ambitious programs, not just for stopping the cruelty, but also for doing the thing we need to do, which is like, we really need to have um, secure places for immigrants in our society. We've never succeeded without having a pool of um, newly arrived people who can become citizens in the United States. Well, I want to thank you so much for your work, number one. Number two, the book that you have just written, because it's very, very important. And last but not least, um, joining us today. This has been fascinating, horrifying, um, and everything else. Um, So thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to thank our listeners, and I do want to follow up on um, Dr. Cohen's comment just now. My suggestion is you go out and you buy this book, and you send it to your favorite um, candidate and put in a note, please read and address these issues um, and make noise about this because this is incredibly important. It is part of the fabric of, of our society, and we do need to address it. Again, the book is Illegal, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime Threatens Us All by Dr. Elizabeth F. Cohen. Look for it and request it in your local bookstore and online. Um, Brody, I want to thank you so much for, for everything you do, uh, both as part of the show and otherwise. And I also want to remind our listeners that, number one, we are sponsored by the L.A. Blade. If you're in the L.A. area, go out, find that newspaper, and read it and absorb it. Also, it's LABlade.com. You can find it online. And listen to my other show, Out in Santa Cruz, on Saturday nights, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can hear that live stream on www.kfco.com. And with that, for the team here at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week with another fascinating topic, and we can't wait to talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. <laughs>